It's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So, today, there's two main things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the amount of time that any music artist waits to release music and how beneficial slash, uh, you know, like, how annoying that can be for a fan from a fan perspective of just having to wait like an obscene amount of time and then the other thing i want to talk about is bands who have amazing lead singers that seem to not use them as much as they could and seem to jump in and sing instead of them uh when really they should just let the lead singer do their job so which one do you want to start with first peter let's start with the a time factor of having to wait so so long and there's we all have bands that we love and artists we love where you have to wait an obscene amount of time to get another release and it is annoying and like you say mike you think why why should i have to wait five years to get another song and also like some of the bands they go on hiatus and they're, they're away for a really long time five years plus maybe sometimes 10 years and then they come back a lot a lot of this happened in the COVID pandemic, they come back at the worst possible time for that band yeah. where they go, right, here we are, we're back for our reunion tour. What do you mean we can't tour? We've been waiting like 10 years for this. A lot of people chose 2020 as like the the reformation sort of like, it, yeah, it felt brand like new it. decade. Like we've got a tour and then obviously all that got cancelled yeah. for obvious reasons. Bands but, like Motley Crue come to mind. Yeah, for me, The Naked and Famous, they just put out an album that was literally starting their tour and then they had to can the full thing because obviously they couldn't do anything with it being early 2020. So many bands hit that sort of... Um, they tripped up on that and they had no idea that that was coming. No, there's no way to predict that, but, but it's it's a thing. It's... It, I mean, I suppose that's the thing when you wait and you have your grand plan and something trips up your plan, there's nothing worse, I would have thought. Yeah, and like I say, that, that's one of those things is those bands could could have made those albums at any time and some of the albums are already made and they just sat on the shelf waiting to come out. Um, like, if we think about albums like, say, this Guns N' Roses album that hasn't come out after Chinese democracy. I'm pretty sure if they open the vault for Guns N' Roses, they will find plenty of albums. You know, there's, there's lots of things, but... Prince. Prince is a fantastic example. He has full albums just sat in his vault. Some of them, I believe it's, what, Welcome to America? Yeah, yeah. That was just already made. All the artwork was made. Everything was there, as far as I'm yeah. aware. But he was just like, nah, I'm not going to put it out. But it's like, but you toured that. He toured that album... And the album never got released. Yeah, and there's there's two sides to this coin, I suppose. There's the, do you want to keep quality over quantity in your discography and only show fans your best sort of side? Or do you want to release everything you've recorded, like as an artist or a label? Do you want to release everything that artist has recorded and then hope that the fans either find it interesting or that it maybe shows that they're more diverse you know like in what they can do instead of doing the same thing over and over again so there's two ways that that conversation can go because we all know the person that says i'd rather them just put the best eight songs out as as like a short album yeah. get rid of the 11 songs pad in take an album like um notes on a conditional vaughn by the 1975 it's what got 22 tracks on 
people are like, well, they should have just picked the best 10. Well, unfortunately, your best 10 is likely not going to be their best 10, especially with bands like the 1975 that like to experiment. They would have probably picked a lot of the more experimental songs over the more standard 1975 songs that you would be used to hearing because they're trying to make a statement a lot of the time. So it's probably by having the 22 tracks, you probably got the songs you wanted, whereas they were likely going to be the songs that were cut. I mean, the amount of times you listen to like B-side albums and, and extended like the vault track material things where you listen and go, why didn't they put this song out? This song's like one of the best songs on the album. It didn't even make it. Yeah, and on a contrasting note, Caddy Ray Jepsen has a B-Sides album to Emotion that I think is better than the vast majority, almost every single song on the B-Sides album, which only has a Japanese OBI strip edition, even though you can buy it, it's readily available. Every single song on that album is just one of the best songs like in that, in that project, yeah. Yeah, and then I can't understand listening to them versus listening to Emotion as a normal album where the decision-making progress comes in, where half of the songs get shelved and the other half stay on the release. It's very fascinating because, like you say, everybody's got a different opinion with music and what your favourite songs by an artist is aren't necessarily the songs that they're going to release it's it's apparent with so many bands. I mean, I also think of The Miracle by Queen. There's a lot of songs that are fantastic songs on the Super Deluxe box set that were either released as B-sides or that just didn't make the cut at all. Yeah, Songs like Hijack My Heart, yeah. a great song. Um, there's so many bands that sort of have this, this dilemma. It's like a moral quandary of, do you, you can't, make every album into a double album you can't constantly release every single song you have to filter through at a certain point or do you that is the question well, do yeah. you have to in the age of streaming where people are regularly dropping 30 to 45 song albums take imagine dragon's newest album yeah mercury they, what is the harm? I mean, I would argue that if you are a big imagine dragons fan or even if you're not a big imagine dragons fan you can look at that 30-song project and say, well, actually, I really like this track, and that track might not come out if they didn't release all 30. I mean, obviously, Act 1 and Act 2 will be split up to some degree. The band will know why there's an Act 1 and Act 2. I, I would not thought that Act 1 would have the strongest songs, and Act 2 wouldn't. Act 2 would be like the B-sides. I don't think that's the case. I think they've split them evenly. thematically yeah, and evenly. Yeah in order to get their release cycle to make more sense as well. More momentum. And then you also have this uh, deluxe box set reissue. Here's every single scrap of every studio session. Here's everything culture going around with the Beatles, with Queen, with, I think Pink Floyd do a lot with their live box I sets. Mean, even recently, Nirvana, Nirvana. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. There's been, a, I mean, a smorgasbord of choice. And they're, they're just the artists that come to come to mind so so then the dilemma you have say as an artist or a label is if you try and hide the material from the fans will the fans seek it out and find it and leak it anyway and also who's to say if you're in a print scenario where you're very picky about your vault and what you should put out if something were to happen to you it's all going to come out anyway so why not just 
own the tracks as they come out. Or release it on your own terms, yeah, I suppose. Because instead it, of having somebody else in a suit come in and say, let's put all this on Spotify, let's monetize this, put it on cassette vinyl, you know, let's make the money from it but, instead of Prince. As example. you say, when he as soon as he shelved that album, he has lost control of the the release product because somebody else will dig through the vault and they will put that album together or they will just look and say, well, that's how Prince left it. Let's just give it a quick, whatever, remix, remaster if, we, if it needs it and put it out. Whereas Prince might have said, well, in my mind, that's not finished yet. That's why it's not out. But yeah. we, we don't know why that is shelved. We, I mean, unless there is an interview, if anybody wants to tell us where he says, we don't know what, why that is shelved and why the album after isn't, for example. There is no real evidence so to prince that album might have been not finished it might i mean say like you too they release a lot of their albums not finished particularly like in the 90s and does that stunt their growth i would no. say not at all yeah and this this comes to the argument where if you have a sub not a subpar that seems a bit harsh but if you have an album that maybe you have run out of time to work on and, and it just has got, to come out you've got a tour coming up you can't carry on working and they need it for the tour whatever the scenario is you have to put this album out and you're maybe not happy with the last two or three songs on the album is it a bad thing to put it out i would argue it's a lot worse for your momentum to not put music out and there's so many bands who have hit this the darkness come to mind because they went on hiatus yep. at a point where they was charting and obviously they've had to grow that audience back almost like as if they're rebuilding from scratch as a new band yeah and because the momentum's not not there is it yeah it, for me it's like bands like extreme they've released a fantastic album called six that the first four songs rise obviously everybody was talking about nunu bettencourt's guitar solo on that song and the, the full album's fantastic the dilemma you have as an extreme fan is you go should we have been given that album now but like fed two or three albums in between. in between what was the damage to the band obviously they're busy doing projects obviously they're not they don't have they're not contractually obliged to release music every two or three years particularly when they're older bands they don't need to if they've got nothing to prove they've got nothing to prove so in a way we should be thankful we got the album at all yes. so there's that side of it as well and it was a it's a meaty album there's a lot of songs on that um but from a band as a business perspective, our bands and any musical artist stunting their growth by just waiting far too long. The Killers come to mind. The Killers, as well. yes, there was a massive gap in their catalogue, and I think they they landed the on their feet. They yeah, somehow they carried way more momentum than they should. But to counteract that, another equally big band, Coldplay, they released albums back to back on years did nothing to damage their momentum. If anything else, it catapulted them even further. Like when you think about Ghost Stories to A Head Full of Dreams, there is not a full album cycle between them. They, they come out 2014, then 2015. And this is like what Taylor Swift is currently doing. She's peppering yes. not only her Taylor's versions of the original six studio albums, but then peppering brand new material in between them all to a like a massively quick rate like we're talking maybe six to eight months per per release if, aren't we i feel like with taylor swift her sort of volume her output volume if you are not a hardcore taylor swift fan you are just not going to be able to keep up but again if you are not a hardcore taylor swift fan what what sort of argument 
are you trying to present? Like, this is for her fans, and she has a lot of fans, so why not give them as much music as she can physically release? And I don't think that there's any Taylor Swift fans who are annoyed about having album upon album and all these tracks that have been vaulted and everything and guest collaborations. I don't think that there's really any fans who said, you know what, Taylor Swift is my favourite singer, but I just can't keep up with these releases. No, people are eating it up. And, and also... Yeah, say, say one of the new uh, Taylor's Versions albums come out and you go, I, I'm, I'm just a bit bent out on it. You can just check it out later. When, later when you're not bent out. Yeah, and also what she's proving is even if you release music at a rapid rate and she's putting like double disc albums out, like we say, maybe three Yearly times. at least, I would say. Maybe three times in two years, you know, yeah. that sort of time scale. Yeah. Obviously, every single one is charting. She's breaking records. She's breaking Billboard sort of album count records constantly. So it shows that it's not a bad thing for her. It's not damaging her reputation. Yeah, pun intended. Taylor's um, version. But the other side of that is clearly fans want more over less. Like yeah. if you're using the quantity versus quality sort of argument or quality versus quantity argument, Taylor Swift is sort of like right on that argument going, well, is she putting more quantity, more quality, or is she putting out a higher amount, a higher quantity of quality than other people? Here's, here's my breakdown of it. Quality is subjective. Yeah. Quantity is not. Objective. So, <laughs> so that is where this argument sort of comes to die. So it, you can argue that a band isn't putting enough out, but can you argue a band is putting too much out or an artist? Because the thing is, quality... One, your least favourite song is probably going to be somebody else's favourite song. The tracks that people say are overproduced, they they might, you know, have the opposite opinion where people are like, well, I like the overproduced track. These, these ones don't sound finished. Like, well, I like these because they sound authentic. And that's where this full thing crosses over. So quality is not something that the artist can really predict. You can put your best songs out there, but again, people like fragility in music, people like underproduction, hence the full grunge thing. So arguably, if you don't release the fragile, underproduced, underworked on songs, you might actually be releasing less quality and more manufactured music according to music or musicologists. It's a really tough thing with production because you're always sort of walking the tightrope of underproduced and overproduced and you lose fans like the venn diagram is like you would say that maybe 50 percent of people don't mind yeah but you'll have say if you use something like autotune or if you record in like a super high-end studio or with you do the thing pro big producers i was gonna say where you get a new producer in and all your yeah. fans go i don't like it the new producer changed them an argument is they were the band had changed that's why they hired this producer that's normally the argument yeah so <laughs> Obviously, when it comes to direction, you can release a very fragile, you know, open-hearted acoustic album and lose your, like... Pop like, or... Pop or rock or dance fans. Like, yeah. say, if you're a dance artist and you're like, this is all acoustic, people who want the bangers and they're the drops, show up. they're going to go, well, it's all acoustic, isn't it? And, you know, that sort of feeds into this argument. And then, like, from a release point of view, do you give everybody something? 
And how do you go about doing that? Do you release three albums in different styles? Do you release an album with a hodgepodge of different styles within it? This is a criticism I feel like the 1975 get is they're not a great band to put on shuffle because they do whatever. And so you might shuffle and get a ton of acoustic sort of really authentic and mellow songs in a row, or you might shuffle it and get all of the like pseudo 80s pop bangers in a row that people seem to love from them. And, and the other thing is, say, that, like with um, being funny in a foreign language, you sort of lack that experimental, instrumental side yeah. to that album, and it's shorter. So you Be- could argue that maybe the experimental side of it was there. And they just took it away. They just took it out. To make a more powerful release, in inverted commas, powerful, because them songs probably would have just been there anyway, but everybody keeps moaning at them for experimenting, so why should they give you more? Because that's, that's the full thing. You know, the CDs... They can take, and streaming, I mean, streaming, you have no cap. You have yeah. no red book standard. So there's no issue with them. Like they could put out a hundred song albums. People regularly do release a hundred song compilations and bootlegs. For example, Richie Cotson released, uh, I think it was 50 songs for his 50th birthday. Yeah. And that's a massive album and a massive undertaking to record. But still, no, there's no qualm that you can listen to that. You can pick your favourite songs. Yeah, you could just pick your yeah, make you your favourite make... fifteen song album out yeah. of the fifty. Or you can like every single song, like I'm sure a lot of his fans do. I've listened to a lot of the songs are great. Now the argument you have in that scenario is if he reduced that album to the best twelve songs, would he pick the ones you like the most? It's a great question. So yeah, it, it sort of feeds back into this. And then you have bands who release high volumes of music and and by high volumes i mean they have consistently released two to four albums a decade i'd say that's pretty consistent i think high volume that's like uh what you would hope or expect that's that's sort of like the tried and tested an album every two or three years like you say it, it covers your bases and it's not too frequent not too little yeah you have bands like journey for example and a lot of these sort of like when they span multiple decades some of the bands struggle to keep the same lineup, right? Yes. And some of the bands, you know, it might be the singer's band, it might be the guitarist band, it might even be the drummer's band, like, say, Fleetwood Mac. It all depends on the band. So this is where we get into bands who have amazing lead singers, right? But for some reason, the band decide to not use them on any given song or multiple songs, or they might fire them before an album and just, you know, not use them for a full album. Yeah. So... There's a few examples, like I'm going to start with Journey. Journey have had a lot of amazing lead singers. I mean, like the top quality singers like Steve Perry and that. Uh, They've had Steve Augury. They've had Arnell. I'm not even going to try. I don't know. Without looking at it it on the screen, yeah. But Arnell, the the current singer of Journey, is fantastic as well. Uh, And it always surprises me how often you will listen to an album and go, well, that's not. Say Steve Augury singing, that's the bass player, that's the keyboard player, that's the guitar player. And it's like, why have a powerhouse lead vocalist in any given recording situation when you're not going to use them? Like we have Steve Lukather, like quoted on one of the deluxe box sets in one of the DVDs saying that, you know, if you're a band, you need the best lead singer you have. And obviously he's boasting about how good the lead singers are. Yeah, he's bigging up Joseph Williams. Joseph Williams. Saying, look, we're we're back. We've got Joseph Williams. He's amazing, which he is fantastic vocalist. 
and he suits Toto really well. But then on all the little things, you have Steve Pacaro singing. On Chinatown, you have um, David Page. David singing. Page singing. Steve Lukather sings Twenty um, First Century Blues. Yeah. So it. It, it becomes one of those things. Where you, you're bigging up your vocalist, you're saying, this vocalist, we wouldn't be even going if it, we yeah. didn't have this vocalist. And then you listen to the album and go, well, hang on, the vocalist isn't singing on three three to five of the tracks. And even when it is a song where he's singing, you've got situations where one of them takes the verse. And like, yeah, so you, you worry about the chorus. I mean, Africa by Toto is one of the most bizarre songs because people are just like, yeah, you know, the singer of Toto. It's like, well, the, the singer of Toto doesn't really come into the chorus on Africa yes it's um, all David Page the piano player yeah uh, and it's just things that a lot of people don't think about but it's things that a lot of say band members will always talk about how you need to have the best lead singer available you need the chops the skills the pipes however they want to call it and then you'll have like an album like, like say even a perfectionism minded band like Boston right yes say, yeah. say corporate America right you have an album where they've spent a decade recording this album they have more singers in that band than they can throw, than they can shake <laughs> a stick at, right? So you look at some of these lineups, say on the song Corporate America, you have Brad Delp, you have um, Cosmo, what's his name? Frank Cosmo. Frank Cosmo. Kimberly. Kimberly. You have all them all singing, and then it pans in the music video and Tom Schultz is singing as well. And, and he like, sings literally every line in that song. Yeah, yeah, they're all singing. There's like a stack of harmonies and obviously they're doing like a harmonising thing, but it's like one of those things where... But the, the, in that song, they are all mixed at unity. There is no lead vocal in that song. Yeah. They, it, they, they have taken... And it doesn't sound like Queen, where Queen, yet yeah, you, you do the harmonies, you mix them at unity, whatever. That's not how this sounds. They're all singing at different points and it's all to do with like the Guns N' Roses, the octave under thing. Yeah. So it's like... There's perpetually like two lead vocalists. Yeah, but obviously there's a song on the album after Corporate America where Tom Schultz just does the lead vocal for yeah. the entire song, despite the fact that he has just hired, well, not just hired, but Tommy DiCarlo is there. Yeah, You've got, specifically um, to do yeah. the vocal. Yeah, and then it, it's just such a weird thing because they're hiring vocalists and then they're like, I've got this one. Yeah, and I've it, got this. It's so bizarre because it's not a bad thing. It gives the records more range. And a lot of people, some people probably won't even notice yeah. unless they look at the it's, album sleeves or the credits. Especially when the sound alikes. This is the thing with Journey. Like on the new Journey album, Freedom, I was looking through the book. I didn't even realise that Arnell doesn't sing one of the songs. I believe it's Afterglow. Um, I'd have to check. But Dean Castronova sings it. And yeah. he doesn't, he does backing vocals, but he, he has been the drummer for Journey quite a lot of times and he sang lead vocals on certain songs. But it's like, where does that come into it? He's not even technically in the band for that album, yet he sings lead vocals on one of the songs. And it's like, well, they sound alike. So Arnell could have just sung that theoretically. Yeah. yeah, he's there. Why not just let him sing? So it's, it is a bizarre thing that you notice with a lot of these bands. Another band that's not, in the sound of like territory is Queen. Yes. And obviously with Queen, all that people talk about is how good Freddie Mercury is. You would think when Freddie Mercury is in the band and all everybody bangs on about is how good Freddie Mercury is. Once in a generation vocalist situation. Yeah. And I agree, Freddie Mercury is one of the best vocalists of all time. Yet there is a good chunk, I'd have to actually look at the number, but there's a, there's a fair few songs where Freddie Mercury isn't doing the lead vocals or he's not really singing anything but backing harmonies at all. 
And there are also plenty of sections in Queen songs where the band members are like, you know, I've, I've got this section. I yeah. know, I know that this is, you know, we're just going. But I'm, Brian's going to take this this verse. Yeah, songs stuff. like "I'm in Love with My Car" has Who, Roger Taylor singing. Thirty nine has Brian May singing. Another great example. Who wants to live forever? Brian May sings all the intro. Yes, and that like if you're talking about somebody who's never heard of Queen and that's the first song they hear, the first thing they hear is Brian singing. That is their first impression of the vocals in Queen. They might turn it off at that point. They might switch to radio station. They don't know Freddie's coming in in thirty seconds. Do you and know what I mean? As as the as the year sort of progressing Queen, particularly when they're on their final two studio albums where they're sort of they're sort of in a mad dash for time, you hear that a lot more. That is expected. But it's not something that was new in Queen. Like, obviously, they all do the harmonies in unison together, and that is a lot of Queen's catalogue as well. Yes. But to take the lead vocal duties is is just fascinating, I think. Well, you've got a powerhouse like Freddie Mercury, and I, I really like a lot of the songs. I mean, obviously, we're talking about some of our favourite bands here, but yeah. it's just something that... It's a bizarre situation. Yeah, that we've noticed listening to some of the bands, and like you said, they will hire a singer to be the lead frontman, like even in a lesser known band that we've discovered recently, like The Storm. Greg yes. Rowley has put together this absolute powerhouse five piece. I think it's a five piece. Um, he's got, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember his name now. Um, Google his name for me. But yeah, so he's hired a really, really impressive singer and Greg Rowley's writing the bands. He's sort of like the lead songwriter. He spearheaded Journey. He found Steve Perry to replace him in Journey. And the keyboard player in Journey, Jonathan Kane, he, he was yeah, his he was, apprentice, essentially. He was basically hiring uh, protégés and training them to replace him in Journey, which is bizarre in itself. But Greg Rowley basically gets singers in, even with, say, feeling that way by Journey, gets yeah. Steve Perry in, does like a, a dual vocal to integrate him into the band, which actually is very smart. It's a great sounding song as well. Yeah, because obviously you get the counterpoint of two vocalists, but you're also introducing a new frontman with the current frontman of the band. Um, right, so it's Kevin Sha Chavlant, I'm going to say. Chalfant. Chalfant. I'm going to need a, a pronouncer <laughs> on that one, but yeah. Chalfant. Yeah, he's an incredible singer. Um, and yet Greg Rowley is like, uh, on, um, oh, for those Raw, who don't know as well, sorry, uh, Kevin, uh, Shalfan is from uh, a band called 707 as well, which he was, he was briefly, and he did an album with them. That's before he went into the storm. Yeah. So you have Greg Rowley and he's like, I'm going to sing, um, half the tracks basically, or I'm yeah. going to sing lead on like dual well they, they recreate that sort of early journeys sound when um steve perry had just joined that's what the storm's sort of doing this there's, there's i mean there's there's an appeal to that there's appeal to having multiple singers i mean particularly just, in different vocal ranges yeah as well. but on, on another completely different tangent frankie and the valleys oh yeah. what a night yeah that one everybody takes a verse everybody takes a section of the song and it's weird because i feel like sometimes if you watch the music video, you're like, oh, yeah, it's obvious that all the sections are sung by different people. If you're not, if you're just sat passively listening to a song, sometimes you don't really realise that that's happening. Yeah, and it's like a bit like with the girl and boy bands. You can listen to a song and not even register how many people are singing what lines because sometimes they... Particularly if you're unaware of who's in the band, you're just going to listen to it and go, great. 
and you might look and it, they're alternating every other line yes. and you're just completely blissfully unaware of who's singing what You're just part. listening to the song. You're just listening to the song because sometimes it's really difficult to notice and once again, unless you're really paying attention when you're listening to music and you know, like say, who's in the band, what this individual voices sound like, you're not going to know who's singing which part of what song. But it is an interesting thing, particularly with the, obviously in, in situations like Little Mix or Girls Aloud, they're all singers, they're all there to sing. Yes. The bizarre thing with the classic rock bands is you'll just have the bass player who's like, like, yo, I'm, I'm going to take this one. I'm taking <laughs> this one. This is my song. I've wrote it. I'm going to sing it. Uh, Kiss, Kiss come to mind for that. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's so bizarre because obviously they're, they're more like, not fighting for power in the band, but they're basically like, they want to get their moment in the spotlight yes. by singing a song or they want to... They're prove. so attached to this song they've written that they're like, you know what? I don't think the other members in the band can maybe carry the song the way I want to carry it because yeah. they're so invested in it. So they just take it. But that's that's great. I believe the song's Beth by Kiss. But that ended up being like the biggest hit on that album, I believe. Well, it was and four so that, different albums that all was released yeah. at the same time, but, wasn't it? But that was, was like that a before big, it? It was a big, I believe that one was a big hit. And so it sort of drove a rift in the band because then Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, who normally take the vocal duties and the songwriting, they're like, well... That should have been my that, hit. Yeah, it should have been me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's a really interesting sort of view of band politics as well in this situation. Like the Eagles, for example. Yes. They hired uh, the newest bass player for the Eagles, who's been in for ages. He's been in since like We're the We're saying 80s. newest, yeah, yeah, but it's a long, but, long time. Um, yeah. he, he was just told, the bassist sings this song, so you've joined the band, you're playing bass, you sing this song. But everybody in the Beatles, as everybody in the Eagles, sorry, is a singer. Yeah. Aren't they? They all, they anybody, all take their songs. Anybody could so, have just took to, that live, yeah. To join a band and say, well, I don't sing, I'm here to play bass, and to be told by like four singers, who are a lot of them legendary singers at that, yeah. well, you sort of just got to figure it out. You've got to sing this one because none of us are going to sing it. Yeah. It's like, well, you could just take it off the set and like, no. No, well, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. Not that's take it. it off make, the set. make him sing it live. That's that's the the bizarre thing. Like you say, they could remove the song from the set. They could get one of the backing singers because a lot of the time they have three backing singers. They're like, nope, bassist sings this song. Yeah. Obviously, in the Eagles, you would hope you would be able to sing because they're going to the be harmonising all the time. But there's a big difference for a lot of people between stacking in getting into that harmony and then saying, you're the lead singer, you carry the track. Also, he didn't write that song. He didn't originally sing it. So that is a completely different situation. There's one thing to say, well, I wrote this song and I sung it like this and it was all natural and personal to me, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to sing it live because I know how to do it. You're just being told, so you sing this guy's song and I believe it's a really hard song. Like it goes right to the top of his range and stuff. Yeah, they do talk about it on the Eagles documentary. Yes. Is it When Hell Freezes Over? That's one of the albums. I don't know if the documentary is called that but, but it's, it is it's on the, Netflix. the big eagles eagles documentary, documentary. They're, they're going to it and it's it's really funny to be honest because there's a lot of humor from him in like he joins the band and he's like why why do i have to sing this song you know i'm not here to do that and it's just they're told well you know just do it and it's it's funny to be honest because you're like you've got don henley like the golden voice yeah, everybody yeah. in that band sings joe walsh has a solo career and, and yeah. you're just like glenn fry yeah to to be told no, you've got to sing it. It's just yeah, so yeah. bizarre. Yeah, it's like putting you, just any any sort of musician in a room full of like, massive, because they're all individual sort of singers as well, like with yeah. individual hits. So you're being told by four massive singers who are all in the Eagles, but also all have big hits at this point solo. Yeah, solo. 
Oh no, we're not going to sing it. You sing it, and I do think it's it's fascinating. It, it feeds into the the Chad Kroger from Nickelback. His his thing of saying, well, in a room full of guitar players, he's a singer, and in yeah. a room full of singers, he's a guitar player because he's sort of half of each, and he. He is not going to go into a room of singers and say, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm X Factor and I'm the vocalist. Like, I'm going to hit the high note, blah, blah, blah. And same in a room of guitar players. He's not going to be like, well, yeah, I can I can play Eruption in one go, blah, blah, blah. Even though I would argue he's phenomenal at both. Yeah, yeah. But I, I wonder if that's where this mentality comes in because a, a lot of these situations are bands where they're like, well, you know, I, I may be the lead vocalist, but I only joined to play drums. It just happens that he had ended up, say, like Don Henley. Yeah. Happens that he he practiced and he has an incredible voice and the way, like, it's a bit like Phil Collins and Genesis with yes. Peter Gabriel. Phil Collins is just a drummer for Genesis when and he does backing vocals. Peter Gabriel leaves Genesis and band audition a bunch of drummer, a bunch of lead vocalists. Nobody can cut it because obviously Phil Collins is the one having to teach them the, the, the vocals, lines, yes, the vocals. Yeah. And they just, the band look at Phil and they go, well, you might as well just sing then. He's like, well, I'm just here to play drums. And then obviously that propels him into the front seat really of Genesis, the face of Genesis. And then and he has a massive solo career basically mainly singing he does play the drums but mainly for a lot of people he's they think of him as a singer at for his singing because obviously a lot of people pay no mind to the drums and what's really bizarre with genesis is how a 70s prog rock band can propel themselves into a 80s pop band but then also peter gabriel comes back and is one of the biggest pop icons like pop rock icons or whatever of the 80s with his album sir and you're thinking, but these these are, these prog, are prog guys. guys. <laughs> these are prog guys. Why are they all doing like eighties pop so well? And they're some of like the pinnacle of that eighties pop rock sort of blend and like world music and all sorts. Because yeah. they're, they're you know they're with them being proggy. They're, they're experimenting. But maybe it. that's why they did so well because they pushed the boundaries in in unconventional ways. Yeah. So it's all about really just being creative. I think that's the main thing there's no right or wrong to do in these situations. And I think some people, some bands may hedge all the bets on the lead singer, but maybe it may be more beneficial to branch out and be more creative. And a lot, you think of the Beatles. Yeah. Obvious one. Queen. I mean, there's a lot of examples of bands. I mean, even to status quo, status quo, two sort of lead vocal figures yeah, in status yeah, quo. Yeah. And this dual vocal thing, you know, there are new bands doing it. ZZ Top just comes to mind. ZZ as well. Top, Because yes. Dusty Hill sings Tush, which is one of the biggest hits. He sings Viva Las Vegas. He which sings is, a lot. Yeah. He sings like and a good chunk of the songs. You know, a lot of people won't notice because they'll just see one of the two beard guys singing and they won't register who it is a lot of the time. But yeah. like you say, that's another example where, yeah, I mean, I suppose a lot of these are sort of, all the band members are playing instruments a lot of the time. Yeah. So they will sing. It's more bizarre when you've got, say, I mean, like I say, I suppose most singers, like even Freddie, I was about to say Freddie Mercury's like, well, he, well, plays, he plays the piano. piano. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's a weird one, isn't it? I was just about to say the, the dual vocalist thing. I, I feel like it's maybe not as popular, but there are new bands doing it. A band, one of the newest bands I've heard doing it, Hot Milk. Yes. They've got this two vocalists taking different verses all the time situation. And I suppose it's something to think about. Like, is that, is that a benefit? I mean, I would argue it's a benefit because you have two different types of tone. 
you have yeah, you yeah. have obviously it saves the voices. This is why people did it originally. Is it saved the voices yeah, when yeah. they're doing these long set lists? They're like, well, I can sing four songs at full power, then you can sing four songs at and full power. You could power. say that maybe the K-pop stuff is really putting this narrative to its most extreme where yes. it's like you get a line here, a line there, a rap here or whatever and they're really utilizing resting vocals and singing yeah but also splitting that role in music between like in some cases a lot of people more than 10 uh most commonly like five to ten is sort of the the amount of singers they have in a lot of the k-pop acts but it's some of them really bend it to the extremes but obviously the other factor is like from a marketing point of view, they have more front men or front women to market at their audience. And like when you've got, say, status quo, you think of two people. Yeah. You, Blink, Queen, Blink 182, yeah, just thought of them. Dual yeah. vocalists. And it's a good way to sort of make more members of a project feel more relevant instead of putting the entire spotlight solely on one person in the band's shoulders. They can sort of say, well everybody in this band is equal and that's sort of what they do with a lot of this sort of stuff where everybody takes different vocal duties and different sort of parts of the music and it makes it more of a cohesive band maybe that's why a lot of the examples we're talking about are very popular because as a band they stick out because they have more than one vocalist and to a lesser degree bands like you too where the edge takes a lot of the counter vocals because counter vocals are a very difficult thing to do as as a single person. A lot of the time they overlap, but it also propels the edge forward in in the arrangement. You think of Bono and the Edge as a not at, so much as a duo because you two as a band, but they are somewhat of a pair when it comes to the way that they deliver the songs. Yeah, a little bit like David Lee Roth and Michael Anthony. His uh, backing vocals always gave an extra angle to David Lee Roth's strength and strength yeah uh, particularly like on chorus building and stuff yeah um so yeah that's been our thoughts on these two subjects so uh, what bands do you think we've missed out that utilize multiple vocalists yeah, and it could be any genre we've definitely not covered all of them and we've maybe covered a very small percentage of them and also do you think that band should release music more frequently or less frequently, what's your opinion on quality over quantity and does it matter? And is there such a thing? Is there such a thing? I would argue there isn't such a thing because that is like the main argument, isn't it? Is that, well, they've got five good albums and then they called it a day. It's like, well, they could have had 10 good albums and if called it just, a day. If they just, yeah, smashed If they yeah. just carried on going, you know. But um, yeah, that I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. Thanks for listening. And we'll, uh, well, you can hear us next week. Yeah. Ooh.